Labyrinths is brought to you by Knox Robinson Productions. Please consider becoming a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you can listen to Labyrinths ad-free. Visit patreon.com slash Robinson to learn more. You know, I'm I'm just heartbroken and I'm really torn. Um, yeah, I'm really conflicted too because the only other Thanksgivings that I've ever missed have been when I was in prison. And I also feel bad because I promised to make the mashed potatoes. And it's like, oh. you know. Yeah, do um, not worry about the mashed potatoes. <laughs> this is a fiasco. Layla's mom wants us to come over. She's adamant about it happening and... It's not ideal. I thought we might be doing Thanksgiving in person. That was a debate among family members. It was suggested we might do a Zoom Thanksgiving. He's 70, he just turned 75. It was an hour and a half of, all right, are you in the Zoom app? You have to use the app. Yeah. (laughs) And then mom is sitting there trying to like tell him what to do. And he's like, I can do it. (laughs) Can you play charades by Zoom? You know, you probably can play charades by Zoom. That's a good point. Maybe we should try that. What about Amanda's family? Are they going to risk it all or what? Well, Chris Mellis wants to do it in person, and Etta is less so. And I I thought, is Chris Mellis a conservative? No. But yet he still, he loves the parties, what he loves. Yeah, he likes to, (laughs) he likes to cook. Okay. It's largely split 50-50 in Texas. Right where I bought my deer tags on the way up here, I was the only person wearing a mask in that store and got some very dirty looks for it. Hmm. You know, it a little bit depends on what news you believe is real because there's two sets of news in the South. I think that it has become political. It seems to me that the conservatives don't take it as seriously as the liberals. I see this as a health issue and not as a political issue and that no matter where your political thinking lies, you probably have a grandmother or a mother who's fighting cancer, or you have a daughter that's pregnant. And for me, that's what it comes down to. The traditional holiday feeling, no matter what, isn't going to be there. It's going to have the overhang of COVID on it the whole time. Feeling lost? Then you're in the right place. I'm Amanda Knox. And I'm Christopher Robinson. And this is Labyrinths. In any normal year, with Thanksgiving and Christmas around the corner, we'd see families putting moratoriums on political talk, coming together to celebrate and not setting a place at the table for the raging battles over racial justice, immigration, climate change, or healthcare, which would only spoil the feasting and merriment. But this is no normal year, to say the least. With the coronavirus surging again in the U.S., with over 11 million cases and a quarter million deaths, the very question of whether to sit around that dinner table has become a politicized issue. If it was tense before when Aunt Debbie wouldn't shut up about Trump, now it's literally life and death if she refuses to wear a mask and grandma comes down with COVID. 
The divides that split our families are the very ones that split our nation. And though President-elect Biden just won a solid victory, those divides aren't going away. As of the airing of this episode, President Trump and the GOP have yet to concede. And let's not forget that though an historic 79 million people voted for Biden, 73 million Americans still voted for Trump. Figuring out why is as urgent a question as any. To tackle this question of polarization, we decided to come at it from two different poles, zoomed in on the present moment and zoomed out to our evolutionary origins as a species. We'll get to the latter in a bit. First, let us introduce you to some experts who've been tracking polarization during the pandemic to understand what the data can tell us. I'm Thomas Carruthers. I'm a researcher at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace in Washington. I'm a longtime specialist on democracy around the world. My name is Jonathan Rothwell. I'm the principal economist at Gallup and a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Christos Macridis and I have been looking at the behaviors and attitudes related to COVID-19 since the start of the pandemic using Gallup data. How would you describe the state of our political polarization in the U.S. when the coronavirus struck? When the virus struck, it hit an America that for 20 years had been on a road of increasing polarization. It hit a country already seriously divided. You're talking about the witch hunt? Is that what you mean? Is that what you're talking about? I, I hear it's a joke. This is a sham and uh, shouldn't be allowed. As polarization got worse in this country, a lot of people felt like, you know what might bring us back together is some big external kind of threat. Because in the 1930s, we were very polarized over the New Deal. And then World War II came along and brought the country back together. So when the virus first hit, some people thought, this may do it. It's kind of like the Martians landing and starting to shoot at us. Maybe we'll put aside our differences and fight the Martians. Well, it turned out the virus wasn't like Martians. We've been tracking a wide range of behaviors, everything from social distancing to mask wearing to attitudes about how fearful people are about getting the virus. And what's really striking is that across just about everything you can imagine, there are big gaps between Republicans and Democrats and how they're understanding the virus, how they're responding to it, and what policies they think should be in place to address it, if any. It's been well known since the beginning of the pandemic that older people are dramatically at higher risk of dying or having serious health complications. They acquire the virus, and yet politics is a more important predictor of behavior and attitudes than age or other risk factors, even living in places that have been hit harder in terms of the number of deaths per capita is usually not even predictive of whether people are social distancing or taking other precautions. Of course, there are legitimate reasons to be divided. A lot of people get the virus and they're fine. Well over 90% of people who get the virus recover very nicely. So first of all, you can disagree about how big of a threat really is it? And then secondly, it's not really clear what the best strategy is. It's not completely obvious that shutting down bars and restaurants is the right policy. Whether you shut them down with 
rules and regulations, or you shut them down entirely, or you have only outdoor seating or indoor seating. Those are the kinds of things that reasonable people are going to disagree on. But whether you should wear a mask or not, the fact that that's been polarized is really surprising to me. There's now compelling evidence that it really does help reduce the transmission of the virus. It seems like quite a small thing to ask, especially if it allows businesses to stay open and people to be out in public safely. So where are these arguably unreasonable disagreements coming from? We've had a president whose governing strategy is highlighting differences, amping them up, finding the things that fracture us as a country and trying to use that fracturing for his own political purposes. So we had a leader who's a polarizer by nature. A virus hits and he says, one more thing to polarize the country over. And he's done so. The president deserves quite a bit of blame for that but not all of it. The uh, media, with his prodding perhaps, have made the statistics on COVID a bit of a scoreboard for his performance. Do you take responsibility at all for some of the 200,000 deaths that we've had? So I think if we didn't do what we did, we would have had millions of people die. We closed up our country. We closed it up very, very quickly, very effectively. And that's what I've done. And we've done very well. It's just another political hit job. He's downplayed the risk throughout. He's cherry-picked data to make him look better as a leader and to help his chances of winning the election that just happened. And when you look at other leaders around the world, they seem to just take a more scientific and rational approach and not interpret everything as a referendum on how good they are as a leader, but just say, here's what needs to happen and just lead. You know, you'd think, eh, all polarizations are the same. They're polarized. But what does differ is, what's the basis of that polarization? What defines the two sides? In India, for example, you have Hindu nationalists and secularists who just can't agree on the role of religion in everyday life. In other countries, it's ethnicity or race. In Kenya, you have two different tribes who've been fighting over power. And in some countries, it's ideology. In Venezuela, do you want a leftist government or a government that's not leftist? Now, the United States, Amanda, is very unusual in that all three of these dimensions, religion, race, and ideology, all three of the bases of polarization have gripped us. And that makes it especially deep and unfortunately especially dangerous in this country. And it's not just a problem on the right. People are gravitating to the websites and social media postings that appeal to their biases and not paying attention to countervailing facts and opinions. You've got populism on the right and the left, but they're so far apart on what the causes and solutions are that they might as well be looking at two different countries. There are some glimmers of hope that people are recognizing a sort of shared reality to some extent. Our survey finds that the vast majority of even Republicans and over 90% of Democrats support mask mandates that would force employees that are coming in contact with the public to wear masks or uh, require people to wear them when they are out shopping indoors. So maybe the fact that President Trump lost the election could open the door to a more reasonable approach among Republican leaders where they feel like they're not going to be contradicting the president when they enact more sensible public health ordinances. That gives me some hope. But there's still this really deep underlying problem where we see 
Republicans telling us in our surveys that the virus is not as deadly as the flu or even automobile accidents, and it's far more deadly than both. And we see Democrats overestimating the number of deaths to young people and uh, being far more reluctant to open schools and to open bars and restaurants, even under what I think are reasonable precautions. You know, the problem with polarization, it isn't just the friction, but it's people begin to be convinced in a very polarized country that the other side is not just wrong, they're dangerous. It isn't just, I disagree with you, it's, I hate you. It isn't just rubbing together, it's bursting into flames. It's anger, it's hatred, it's violence. And then it's politicians not accepting the rules because they think, you know what? I believe so much in my vision as opposed to their vision. Rules just have to step aside here. And once you start stepping over rules, then democracy is really in trouble. In the coming months, we'll see if we can all collectively step back from the brink and rebuild our democratic norms. But even if we do, the things that divide us have roots much deeper than political affiliation. To get at the cause of our fractured society, we have to zoom way out and look at why humans are the way they are. We have to ask, wait, but why? We could give you lots of reasons to support Labyrinths on Patreon, including ad-free episodes and exclusive patron-only content. But why not hear it direct from a listener? Hi, this is Canon. I'm a big supporter of the Labyrinths Patreon page because the work that these people do is really thoughtful and it's one of my favorite podcasts and Patreon accounts in the world. Visit patreon.com slash Robinson. Have you ever wondered whether you should cryo-freeze your body when you die? Or how to pick a life partner or career? Or whether or not you should be losing sleep over the possibility that an artificial superintelligence might convert all our atoms into paperclips? Or why you secretly hate cool bars? Tim Urban has been asking all these questions and more on his immensely popular and eccentric blog, Wait But Why? Compared to experts like Thomas Carruthers and Jonathan Rothwell, he's not a specialist, but a committed generalist willing to tackle any subject. And he does so with whimsical stick figure illustrations, a love of footnotes and research rabbit holes, and a knack for evocative metaphors. Just listen to him describe the beginnings of the Industrial Revolution and the fossil fuel era in a talk he gave for Ivy, the social university. It's like a dog that's like digging to put his bone into the woods and then he discovers like a cave of pulled pork. Like, <laughs> you know dogs, they're not gonna be like, well, that's interesting, I'll have a little now, just come back to that later. No, the dog's gonna eat until he dies. And the problem is the humans aren't that different and we're basically, that's what we did and we're kind of eating until we die. Tim also uses clever visual representations to give abstract concepts a real gut punch like in his talk at the official TED 2016 conference. I call this a life calendar. That's one box for every week 
of a 90-year life. That's not that many boxes, especially since we've already used a bunch of those. It's sobering just to see all those tiny boxes, to reckon with the fact that there is some finite number of books you'll read before you die. It's less than you probably think. That you may have only 700 chances left to eat pizza or two dozen dinners with your parents before they pass. These posts show Tim's deep investment in questions about how we think about our lives and how we can make them more fulfilling. We fell in love with Wait But Why a few years ago and reached out to Tim, who graciously met us for a drink on our way through New York. That night, he mentioned wanting to tackle a difficult subject, our increasing political polarization. We could sense his anxiety over it. Fast forward to March 2020. Chris and I are newlyweds as of a week. We squeezed our wedding in just before we all went into quarantine from COVID-19. Tim was now 10 chapters into his ambitious new series, and it was breaking his brain a bit. He was in the heart of the labyrinth, but he wasn't there alone. He was trapped in his own quarantine with his wife, Tandis. Every post I write, it goes through the Tandis filter, which, among other things, uh, it tells me which jokes aren't funny. <laughs> and that's useful because that, that allows me to be a little bit less paranoid myself and just write exactly what I feel like at all times. And then she can later be like, no, or like change that wording. As the posts get longer, that's become like a bigger job. Um, but I'm just going to assume that she's going to continue to do it without complaining. <laughs> and then on Tim's end, he basically helps me with all marketing lines. I express something I think about the healthcare industry. And then he says it back to me in a much smarter, more interesting way. And then I steal that and I get lots of compliments for it. Tandis's fixation has been the health industry, and it's led her to co-found a new company called The Lanby that aims to rethink the doctor's office. Like Tim, she has a generalist's approach. We're sort of bad at thinking ahead about how important primary care is and how it really helps with developing worse issues down the line and saving money down the line. People go out and see specialists, and their health care is really piecemeal, and they end up quarterbacking their own health. Her vision is to reimagine primary care clinics as communities where you're actively investing in your own health, not just meeting a doctor for 10 minutes to get a referral to a specialist. While her plans were set in motion before the pandemic, they feel ever more relevant, for the pandemic has heightened our sense of unease and dysfunction when it comes to healthcare in our country. The very fact that most of us are in the dark as to our own health and must rely on haphazard and often contradictory information from specialists on high, puts into context how so many people could fall prey to politicized COVID conspiracy theories. In other words, you can't diagnose the problem with health messaging purely by looking at press conferences with Dr. Fauci. You have to zoom out and look at the foundations of how we understand our health and how we fail to. And, you know, part of that is because the system is really broken and doctors have to see as many patients as they can in a day because of insurance. You know, it just is a very bad process where you wait like a month to get an appointment. You see the doctor for 10 minutes and then it's upsetting in there. Basically, it's a really depressing place to spend any time and it doesn't feel that useful and it really doesn't need to be that way. No other service gets away with that right now. And so we just thought about how can we modernize this? How can we make it like other cool companies and make the doctor's office a cool place to be? 
part of the answer has to do with data. So a lot of people have an aura ring or a Fitbit, and they're kind of collecting a bunch of stuff, but you don't have anyone there to interpret that data for you or help you manage that information. So we want to be able to link all of those apps into our apps that you can actually do something with that information and send it out to your doctor. And if you're a health optimizer, it's more interesting if you have someone there analyzing that information for you. And then part of the fact that so many doctor's offices still operate on like paper files is that your data is kind of all over the city with different doctors. Like who knows all their vaccinations? How many people know their blood type? Like our personal health information doesn't feel like it belongs to us right now. And so the idea of putting all of that into an app where I can open my app and see what my last cholesterol information was, you know, all of my like blood testing, all of my health history. What did my mom have again? Oh yeah, it's in my app. Like that information should be ours. And right now there's not a good place to keep all of that stuff. And so that's definitely part of it. I think people will be more interested in their health if they're more empowered with their own data. It's hard not to wonder if we might never have reached this point with the pandemic out of control and a shortage of ICU beds and ventilators, all our chips on the Hail Mary of a vaccine. If we'd all felt more ownership over our own health all along. Her focus on reimagining primary care shows a deep understanding that sometimes the answers to our problems must be discovered through first principles thinking. Not looking at what's around and figuring out how to make it incrementally better, but asking, What's definitely true? What's our goal? What are the obstacles? What's the best thing we can make here if we're starting from scratch? First principles thinking is a huge part of what makes Wait But Why special. Whatever question Tim is approaching, he starts way further back than you expect. In his series on Tesla and Elon Musk, he begins with a graph of energy usage that runs from the beginning of humankind till the end of humankind. The first thing you need to do is just to understand why this matters is just take a huge step back, a big zoom out, and look at the history of everything before and the future in terms of energy. This has become a defining principle for the way Tim thinks. He explains this by looking back at the first true geologists who threw out the biblical flood theory. When everyone say, no, we know that the Earth started 6,000 years ago. We know there was a flood. They said, I don't know shit, which was this amazing springboard towards truth. You have to start with I don't know shit to get anywhere. Tim's latest series, The Story of Us, takes this to its most extreme, starting with the beginnings of primate life to explain modern politics and polarization. I'm an animal that was optimized to be really great at surviving in a tribe in 50,000 BC in Ethiopia. That's what every one of us actually is. Evolutionary biologists refer to this as behavioral modernity, the point in our evolution when humans developed language, religion, and figurative art, and most place it at least 40,000 years ago. When you start coming back to this fact, that though our culture and technology has progressed to incredible degrees, our physical brains have not appreciably changed at the hardware level since hunter-gatherer times, every problem in modern society becomes a little more clear. Our brain is a tool developed to understand a very specific world, which was kind of a hunter-gatherer world. And it's really good at understanding that world. And when you bring it into a society with way more people, and all these other different things about it. 
you're taking an animal out of its natural habitat and you're putting it somewhere else, your brain, that tool, why would it have developed the ability to absorb the reality of, you know, a huge amount of people reading something you wrote? It didn't develop that tool. And so uh, I think there's a lot of things like that where sometimes we forget that this tool in our head is not a magical Swiss Army knife. It absolutely is crafted for something. And so very often it's a fish out of water. Yeah, I've, I've often thought that the weirdness of celebrity culture derives from this notion that way back in the evolutionary environment, the only time you would ever see a face that you didn't personally know was when they were a king or a god, you know, and they were carved in stone. And like, you just, there wasn't the ability to see someone's face and recognize their voice and yet never meet them. And so now when people are used to seeing Kim Kardashian or whatever, I mean, it happens to Amanda. I remember one time this guy at a hotel came up and he heard someone say Amanda's name and he brought his granddaughter up and he's like, come here, I want you to meet Amanda Knox. And then he walked up to a different woman. <laughs> <laughs> like standing at the yeah. bar next to us. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> it's like his notion of like the importance of fame, it, it transcends the actual individual personhood of Amanda because he didn't, didn't even recognize her. You know? <laughs> it was just important to him that his seven-year-old granddaughter met a famous person. That is so funny. Chris, I totally like resonate with what you're saying. Like I thought about it all the time, like, there was no such thing as like hearing music that wasn't being played live ever. Totally. There was no such notion as seeing something that wasn't in front of your face. Like it is so weird, the world we live in. And it is so, we're so out of our pay grade here trying to live in this world. And every legend in history, think about someone like these like mythic names, Plato or like Alexander the Great. They were, it was an animal. Like Plato was an animal. He was a he was an organism, like a like a mm. primate. He was a primate that lived once for a little bit, like that ate food like a primate. <laughs> and it's just like they're all he pooped. <laughs> like Michael Jordan, he's a primate out there somewhere. And it's just weird because you you build the human up into something so big, but you know, there's not that much a human can be in the end. It's just this primate trying to live its life. So I mean, this is a blog post. Plato the primate pooped. Yeah, yeah, I may, I may have to do that. Uh, I can already hear it. There's some good drawings that could go along with that. As funny as it is to think this way, it's also a scary thought. Somehow, masses of primates with 50,000-year-old motivations and cognitive habits developed cultural norms that have enabled things like democracy to flourish. But that cultural progress is so, so recent so fragile, and so at odds with our base instincts. Trying to preserve the progress we've made means acknowledging this root fact and asking how we might change our hardware and how we might change our software. The problem is, those questions are so often taboo. For Tandis, looking at human health from first principles, that territory includes genetic engineering, if this were a wait-but-why post, you'd now be entering the Designer Baby's Blue Box, essentially a long and fun tangential footnote that doesn't seem all that related to the main subject of political polarization, but which actually, unexpectedly, is. A lot of my interest in health comes from selfish places, my own fear of mortality, my own interest in being healthy, and my own interest in having designer babies. Tandis once wrote a paper about the subject for Columbia Law Review, 
When you start from first principles, looking at bringing a child into the modern world with 50,000-year-old hardware, wondering how we might upgrade humanity is a sensible question to ask, even if it raises shouts of eugenics from the peanut gallery. A designer baby is a smart, hot baby. Yeah. That you make hot and smart. <laughs> Candace was deep diving on that for a while, and we were, we were every night in some different debate. One example that I remember, you know, so the hearing impaired community, there's a scenario where two deaf parents want to have a, a kid. And so the first scenario is, what if there are, you know, 10 embryos in a Petri dish that they've created? And one of them happens to be hearing impaired. This will be a hearing impaired child. And they decide that this is not a bad thing. This actually is a wonderful insular community that they are part of. And they want their kid to be part of that community. And they're going to choose to give birth to the hearing impaired embryo. Is that ethical? So that that one is a little difficult. But then you get to, what if they only had one embryo in a Petri dish? And they were actually had the technology to go in there and modify it to turn it from normal hearing to hearing impaired. They're going to turn this into a deaf child. Is that okay? And, you know, the, usually the instinct is to say, well, no, definitely not. And then other people say, well, other people in that age in the future are going to be modifying their kid to be maybe taller or to be more musically inclined or whatever. And who are you to judge what is good and what's not? They think being hearing impaired is, makes them for a better life. Who are you to tell them that that's wrong? Yeah, so the thing that I'm worried about is not that some individual ethical choice to alter the embryo, but what happens when this becomes a runaway thing, when China starts allowing this, and then we think, oh, well, we need super babies too, and then all of a sudden, everyone's diving in headfirst into genetic modification of humanity to the point where we end up changing things perhaps too quickly and in a way that makes us vulnerable to some new pandemic, say. There's all kinds of uncertainties that come with fiddling with those things we don't quite understand yet. Yeah, that's really the fun between science and the law. Science is sort of what can we do, and then the law is what should we do. And the law is just always a little bit behind. Um, and that's scary because science is going to move more quickly than we're able to regulate it, and we don't really know where it's going to end up right now. And so it's, you know, part of my interest in law was let's think about these things early, and let's think about all the scenarios that can happen and think about how we would want to regulate them. But, of course, we're not very good at, at thinking forward like that. Right, especially on topics that make us feel existential threat. Yeah, there's lines like this, because there are obviously scenarios where most of us would be comfortable with modifying, like to get rid of some sort of genetic disorder. But then what other kinds of changes can they make? And it's like, well, we like parents make actively bad decisions with their kid all the time. There are all sorts of rights that parents have to do things like pull kids out of school and have these religious exemptions. But when it comes to genetics, we treat it really, really differently. And is there a a meaningful reason that we, we create that difference. If you haven't figured it out yet, the thing that genetic engineering and political polarization have in common is that thinking about them clearly is so often derailed by taboos. The current thing I'm working on is the closest I've gotten to like complete nervous breakdown from the challenge. It started with me feeling like I could write about every topic you know, as a blogger, not working for anyone, with a really open-minded audience, I've taken on religion, I've taken on weird things like cryonics, I've taken on a bunch of things I'm not an expert on, like AI. I wanted to write about politics, and I realized I was, like, terrified. This is the scariest thing. How did this happen? So I need to write about society, because uh, what's going on in our country in general, what's going on in the world, there's some big story happening here. 
And then I need to write about why I'm scared to write about that story. So he started at the beginning. Given that we're all primates with brains that haven't seen an upgrade in 50,000 years, what exactly is going on in our heads while we navigate modern society? There's this vertical axis that a human can go up and down, and the top of that axis is when we're being grown-ups, when we're being wise, when we're being in control of ourselves and thoughtful and kind and compassionate and empathetic and all of those things. And uh, as you go down that axis, you become much more of your kind of unthinking, ancient primate self who just wants to survive and you lose all of those qualities and you just care about who's in power over others and all your principles go out the window. Tim presents this on Wait But Why as a perpetual tug of war between the primitive mind and the higher mind with fear, aggression, hunger, and so forth on one side and reason, empathy, and imagination on the other. But it's not just a question of individuals. We're all part of families, which are part of communities, cities, religions, political parties, and these larger and larger units all coalesce into whole societies, pictured in Tim's world as human giants. And this big story, I think, is that we go up and down, we ebb and flow on this axis as a society, just like we do in our own lives individually. In his long series, The Story of Us, Tim creates dozens of novel metaphors and visualizations to help explain his grand political theory. On the thought ladder, he breaks down different ways that individuals and societies can operate. At the top are scientists who operate from first principles, who hold truth above tribal triumph. Below them are sports fans who fondly advocate for their side within reason. Below them, the attorneys, who argue for their side, cherry-picking evidence as needed. And at the bottom, dominated by the primitive mind, the zealots, whose only goal is triumph. Societies that empower scientific thinking, Tim labels idea labs. The ones that encourage zealotry and tribalism are echo chambers. The problem, in Tim's diagnosis, is that our American giant is sick. Our idea lab culture, with its roots in the Enlightenment, is slipping down the thought ladder as we become more politically polarized. We've been in like a macro swing downward the last 30 years or so, and it's getting more steep the last four or five years. And that has created an environment where the more extreme people have gained a lot of influence, because when we're low on that axis is when extreme people usually have a lot more power and influence. Hitler was really unpopular in Germany in good times in the 20s. And then the Great Depression hit and bad times set in and someone like Hitler became more appealing and he moved from the fringes to the, more to the center. And you see that again and again. A lot of ex really more extreme ideologies and extreme philosophies have been moving towards the center as part of this big story. And that has made writing about politics much scarier than it used to be. You know, it's always controversial. You're always going to have people that don't like you because of what you said or they're mad at you. But writing about politics today, even in a way that would seem harmless a few years ago, can have your career completely destroyed, which is really intense. That's a crazy concept. Part of this has to do with another of Tim's visualizations, the thought pile and the speech curve. When the two line up, there are no taboo subjects. People are legally and socially free to express what they think, wherever those thoughts lie on the political ideology spectrum. But when the speech curve gets misaligned, 
Through evolving values in society, through top-down suppression of speech by governments or institutions, or by social pressure within communities, some of the things people think are no longer expressible without punishment. There are plenty of places in the world where saying the wrong thing will literally get you thrown in prison. We're fortunately much more free than that here, but that doesn't mean that social media mobs and public shaming have no power to coerce people into silence. There are those who argue that cancel culture doesn't exist. They conflate it with accountability, saying there's nothing wrong with holding people to account when they express vile ideas. But who decides what's vile? Can a headless mob accurately suss out truth from accusation or deliver proportional punishment? Does it allow a path for rehabilitation? As someone who's been imprisoned from a flawed investigation, tunnel vision, and moral panic, I'm very sensitive to the importance of due process and of creating environments that do their best to dampen the rage of aggrieved parties. Even then, we get it wrong far too often. The mob, with none of those protective measures, is far more unreliable. And that unreliability is what leads people to fear being accused of wrong-think. And when that happens enough, people become afraid to think altogether. If as a society we only learn and evolve and work on things by talking about them together, the implications are awful. So that's what I've been getting into is trying to uh, unpack that puzzle and doing so a little bit at my own peril here, um, especially this next chapter coming out. We'll see how it goes. But I can't be fired. And I do have these readers that I think are pretty open-minded and are supported by reader donations. And so if I'm not going to do it, you know, who is? I have the least scary situation. So I decided to just go for it. And that means being critical of both sides of the political spectrum. For Tim is more interested in how we think than what we think. I think, honestly, in the 2000s, a lot of the crazy parts of the right were more active. The Tea Party and Sarah Palin. I think that they seemed like, to me then, clearly like the more childish, sillier party with more extremists and everything. And then I think that changed. The right still has plenty of their own craziness going on. Uh, it's not, this isn't, you know, nothing I'm writing is saying that the right has become really good. The right is still has all kinds of problems. But the same thing that happened to the right in the 2000s, I think that the left now has allowed that same thing to happen. They didn't learn the lesson. Um, when you're so fixated on beating the other side, getting power over them and winning those battles, you're tempted to get into bed with some of the most extreme people, quote, on your side. And I think that's a giant mistake for so many different reasons, one of which is that they will invade. And again, it's not these aren't bad people. It's a bad set of ideas that infects good brains, almost like an epidemic that can start sweeping through the whole party. And suddenly everyone on the left is talking in ways they didn't used to in much less charitable, compassionate, thoughtful ways than they used to. Those who warn against the growing threat of illiberalism within the left often face the rejoinder, well, Trump and everything happening on the right is so much worse. You're worried about social justice warriors when there are literal Nazis on the other side? Tim faces this too. It's like it reminds me of some of my friends who, right after the Trump election, after I've talked about my ideas, they'd say, I don't think the left is the problem right now, Tim. Without a doubt, at the present moment, the political right and GOP are dangerously undermining our democracy by attempting to delegitimize the vote. 
and we cannot stress enough how awful that is. But it's also a terrible mistake to think that 73 million Americans who voted for Trump are Nazis. They aren't all supporters of white supremacy. In fact, according to exit polls, plenty of them are people of color. Trump increased his support among the Black, Latino, Muslim, and LGBT communities this election. The only group he lost support among was white men. If the political left has any hope of reconciling with those voters, they won't do it by embracing the most extreme tribal othering that writes the other side off as irredeemable racists and bigots who deserve to suffer. From Tim's perspective, the cohesion and principles of a movement matter. And if you want your ideological tribe to be effective in moving our society towards your ideal vision, you gotta get your house in order. Put out the fires at home to have any hope of success. If someone starts a blog out there and they name it Wait But Why, and they start writing really nasty, bigoted pieces that on the same topics as I write about, but they're just not writing in a way that I would ever write myself, I'm not going to be like, yeah, well, another Wait But Why, represent, you know, like we're all in the same thing. I'm going to be like, <laughs> I'm going to be like, cease and desist. <laughs> this is suddenly my biggest problem in life is getting this thing off the internet because it's destroying my credibility and my brand. That's what happens here. When, when you have other people saying we are progressives or we're social justice activists and they're acting in a way that does not at all represent the high-minded principles of those things, that's the biggest threat to what you're doing. Those are not good guys on your side. At least, well, at least they're fighting against white supremacists. No, no, no. They are 100% going to end up empowering white supremacists. They're going to end up destroying your mm -hmm. ability to make progress against the things you're trying to make progress against. And then the whole left loses credibility because nothing Fox News likes more than to be able to broadcast the craziest things going on in the left to everyone on the right. And it's this simple kind of lesson that we don't learn. You see it again and again in history. We haven't learned it. Tim has been laying out his grand political theory one solid brick at a time because he actually wants to reach people. And to do that, he has to be very careful not to provide reasons up front for people to write him off as a tribal enemy. That's part of why most of the Story of Us series has been politically neutral. I'm thinking about three categories of people. There's the people that are already on my page. They've been thinking all the same thoughts. They've been on the same journey I have. They're going to agree with whatever I'm saying here for the most part. Sure, it's fun to have people agree with you, but it's not going to have any impact. So if I want to have impact, you've got to be able to change the minds of people who initially, if they heard your thesis, would say, that's dumb, that's wrong. And then by the end, they change their mind. If you can do that, then that changes something. Yes, building awareness about a growing threat is important, sure. But the impact could be so much bigger by challenging what all those audience believe versus saying, you know what you're already mad about? You're so right, and here's a reason to be even more mad about it. Like that's To me, that's what 95% of political commentators or political writers are doing right now. And I just don't think it has that much impact. If anything, it makes things worse because it just hardens the sides to their own additional points. Then there's the bunch of people who will absolutely never come around. This is too much part of their identity on some of these topics. You know, politics is as much of your part of your identity as religion for the most crazy religious people. And so those people are going to hate me for saying something that they disagree with on this. And that's inevitable. But there's a third group. And it's these people who they're going to take some convincing. But they deep down are actually on the same page as me. They just haven't been reading all the same things. And they, they need to be kind of um, educated a little bit on some of the stuff going on. And 
So the part of the reason I'm going so slowly with it is I'm trying to bring all of those people on a journey that they support along the way. And each step they say, okay, yeah, I'm still on board. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. And eventually when I get to the stuff that at the beginning they would have just rejected outright, they might be seeing it in a different light and actually willing to say, you know what, like now I'm seeing that this controversial stuff is actually an extension of this other stuff that I totally agree with. So I'm wondering, like, do you get people anticipating where you're going and trying to preempt you? Does that happen in the emails that come in? Oh, absolutely. Although what's funny is there's so much confirmation bias in politics that through the first like eight maybe chapters, when I was saying things like talking about echo chambers and the kind of um, low rung way of thinking about politics, most of the, the, the really hardcore partisans all assumed I was on their side talking about the bad guys. Like, the other ones. <laughs> yeah, I got, I got emails from, from Trump supporters saying, thanks so much for finally talking about the way the left is being. And then I got all these emails from people on the left saying, this is exactly what people need to know about Trump supporters. And I just kind of said, <laughs> all right, well, this, <laughs> this is going to get ugly at some point. Because I, I've criticized the left now a little bit, um, people are starting to get the idea that this isn't just like an anti-Trump thing. And so what's happened is, a lot of the really partisan people on the left have started to get pretty angry in the comments. And it's happened like the last couple of posts. As people realize that like I'm building towards this, now they reframe me as this bad person, this um, or saying that I'm a privileged white person. And again, as this is totally expected, and the really partisan people are gonna get really angry if you're not totally agreeing with them. They're just going to, and and it's really you're challenging their identity when you're disagreeing with their politics and you're challenging their family's identity and they've built up a lot of their own meaning and their own purpose and their own ability to feel righteous and intelligent. All of those things, are they hinge on this political ideology. If that ideology is not true, all of those other things go out the window too. And that's really scary, which is why people also get so freaked out, you know, religious people when someone is an atheist. That's why an atheist is the least likely person to win in the U.S. election. So We're the least represented group in, in government. Exactly, because you're threatening a lot more than people's religious beliefs. You're threatening their entire worldview, their entire moral system, your existence. And if it's true, val- invalidates everything about them. And so same thing goes for politics. The Story of Us series on Wait But Why is far more in-depth than we have time to unpack here. You'll have to decide for yourself if Tim's on the right track. What's less debatable is that in the midst of the coronavirus quarantine and the turmoil of the transition from a Trump to a Biden administration, our whole civilization feels a lot more fragile than it ever has. That problem, too, has a lot to do with our primitive hunter-gatherer hardware. With Trump still refusing to concede the election and the fate of our democracy hanging by a thread, we're legitimately worried that our current polarization might erupt into violence. We're worried that civilization as a whole is trending towards its own collapse. So we asked Tim and Tandis what they thought the pandemic was revealing about humanity and our future. I think it's making a lot of people realize how unprepared they and maybe the whole society is 
for some kind of existential change. There's so many different things with our explosive technology that could dramatically change society in an existential way. And when these things happen, it's going to be a lot of scrambling on your feet. Both the president and the rest of the government and the culture itself is all going to be frantically trying to figure out what the hell to do. And this is probably the first of a few of these we're going to experience of these times when we realize that no one has a plan. And I think ideally it would help us become wiser. It would be like some kind of flu shot for bigger things down the road to have something like this happen and expose just how not prepared we are. But I worry that we're just not good at thinking, you know, we we really are focused on Tuesday and what's going on on Tuesday. And the government's kind of focused on this four years and how to get reelected. And I just worry that the system isn't set up to ever prepare for this kind of thing very well. And so it makes me a little worried and uh, makes me kind of want to Uh, have a bomb shelter. Yeah. It's also just one of those mirrors on human nature of just, you know, brings out the heavy selfishness in some people and all the toilet paper hoarding. And then it also brings out this really warm and fuzzy side of people who are trying to help within their community and all of these like GoFundMe set up for restaurants in our neighborhood, which is really, really lovely. The worse the situation gets out in the field, the more people's true colors show. I always, when I'm in the coffee shop and I see all these little people with their beards and their lattes. Yeah. Like back when that was a thing. Um, I always think about some incredible existential crisis happening, like much worse than this. And some of those people would be the people stabbing other people to get their food. Some of these people would be running around trying to help the wounded, even if it's putting themselves in danger. Deep down, like core character is usually not revealed by almost anything. It's hidden in all of us. And it's in all those people in the coffee shop. Who knows what's deep down underneath? But just wait something like that happens. And I just picture suddenly chaos in that coffee shop and the people running around and- uh, Yeah, the thing I'm worried about is the chaos. And one of the most striking stick figure graphs that I think you've ever done on Wait But Why is just that small image on the AI series with the guy standing right before the dramatic upswing of the exponential curve. You know, trying to get people to intuitively grasp an inherently unintuitive thing. And- My worry is that given that broad technological trend on the macro scale, we're going to be encountering injections of chaos in a society at an increasing rate. Could be a a new climate disaster. It could be a a superintelligence thing. It could be that uh, democracy crumbles even more and the norms that have been eroded over the last four years get further eroded. I'm worried that even if we figure out the coronavirus thing and that pandemic abates, there's just yet another injection of chaos coming and no one really has time to get back on their feet and figure things out. Does that possibility worry either of you that we're entering a period of just increasing chaos until things collapse? (laughs) Should you be getting into your soapbox barrel and just shouting, the end is near? (laughs) Right now, it's just kind of weird. This is just a weird time, a pandemic. It's a novel experience for everyone. And I think that we're going to have a lot more of those than people in the past have had in our lives. I think that the novel experiences are going to start coming faster and faster, kind of like Chris is saying. And the same brain that I was talking about before that evolved as a tool for a hunter-gatherer tribe, like it doesn't, there were no exponential curves at all in a tribe like that. There was just, everything was linear, linear lines, straight lines. We are always going to be fighting against our own intuition in a weird time like this. But when things are actually weird, when you do live in an anomaly, and you you know our life is 100% an anomaly compared to what the typical human in the past has lived in terms of changes and everything like that, 
you actually, your intuition becomes the naive one. And you're going to have to override that as much as you can. And uh, the best we can do to get better at that is having experiences like this pandemic. And when things happen, we will start to get wiser, at least a little bit. It's easy to forget how anomalous our modern lives are, not just in relation to our hunter-gatherer past, but even to a few centuries ago. This period in history, people are living in a way that most of history, no one's ever gotten to live. And so it's hard for us to conceptualize how bad things really can be. I was just like upstairs lying under a really, really soft blanket. With her little dog. We just looked at each other and we're, and we're just kind of like, this is the way that queens used to live and no yeah. one else. Like j- just literally being on a soft couch with a soft blanket and a little dog in like an air-conditioned apartment. And just thinking, I'm Marie Antoinette. Like I just get to live how she lived and much better. Most people never had that kind of luxury and comfort of any kind. And um, Interesting and comparison, Marie Antoinette. <laughs> it's very ominous. Yeah, well, exactly. I'm about to get my head chopped off. <laughs> <laughs> so we, the, we have all these like incredible anomalous luxuries that we have to remember, like we are not entitled to these. We don't deserve them any more than any other human. We're lucky. So just to remind ourselves, like, that we have to treasure the current situation we have. And and this is part of my blog series. It's like, let's work together to try to keep this thing because we're all very fortunate and it could go away. And once it goes away, we will all be so regretful we didn't act better Mm. back when we had a better world. You know, we have to have our wits about us. And that's why I worry is we'll just unconsciously kind of run ourselves off cliff by just continuing to expand and grow and fight with each other without thinking hard about the bigger picture. The universe is this big dead place with physical forces and guarantees nothing to anybody. This could be taken away and there'll be no injustice done. That's what we call romantic nihilism. Recognizing that the universe doesn't give a crap about us makes all our progress that much more special. And Tim is right. We are incredibly fortunate to be born into an age where cultural tools like democracy and freedom of speech and technologies like the internet grant us the luxury to actually shape the course of our civilization for the better. But it's so, so easy to get lost in the weeds of our present debates, to indulge our tribal impulses, to see ourselves as us waging war on them, whether that us label is conservative or woke or American. As Wait But Why shows, Thinking from first principles can help us escape the labyrinths of political polarization. It's not too late. We can come back together as a country. We don't have to fight over masks. We don't have to fight over who gets credit for the vaccine. Let's just do it. The vaccine's coming. That's good. Put on the mask if you can. Be careful. Accept that the other people may have a slightly different approach. Let's try to keep our eye on the bigger ball here, which is the health of our country, and not worry so much about who's right and who's wrong about all the ways to get there. First principles thinking has never been popular, but it's also been the only real path to progress, which comes not from finally finding the right thoughts to think, but from all of us thinking harder about how we think, what leads us to indulge our primitive impulses, our tribal rage, and what unleashes the creativity that has brought us so far from our days of stalking prey and gathering berries, the creativity 
whose only allegiance is to the truth. Join us next time as we sit down with author Yasmin Mohammed, who escaped an arranged marriage to an Al-Qaeda operative and has now become a controversial feminist and atheist advocate in the Muslim world. So come on, get lost with us. Find us on Twitter, at Amanda Knox. At Man Under Bridge. At KnoxRobinson.com. And subscribe so you don't miss the next episode of Labyrinths. This episode was written by us, edited and sound designed by Chandler Mays, with theme music by Josh Budo Karp. Special thanks to Ted for clips of Tim Urban's talk. For more talks and audio, subscribe to TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. In the coming months, we'll see if we can all collectively step back from the brink. Boy, am I, I'm having trouble today. Well, I'm, I'm lispy do it any, and I'm, anyway. <laughs> I'm lispy and raspy. Lispy and raspy. <clears throat> they lisp and rasp. They lisp and rasp and lisp. Lisp, 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 lisp rasp, rasp, rasp. The, the lispy, lispy and, and raspy, raspy show. show. <laughs> <laughs> Fun fact, for every hour of labyrinths you enjoy, we put in dozens of hours researching, outreaching, interviewing, scripting, editing, and audio engineering. What keeps us going? Coffee. coffee. So if you're enjoying labyrinths, please buy us a coffee. Head over to patreon.com slash Knox Robinson, where you can make a monthly donation. Thanks for getting lost with us. <laughs> <laughs>